listening to UCL's Parliament and Me podcast series, celebrating our engagement with the world of policy. This year, the year of Vote 100, we're focusing on stories from current thinkers discussing their work with Parliament and the women who've inspired them to do so. I'm Emma Baxter, and this series is funded by the EPSRC and brought to you by UCL Public Policy, connecting the world of research with the world of policy. Journalist Rosie Bartlett joins us in the studio asking the questions. We hope you enjoy the series. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at UCL Public Policy. In today's podcast, we hear how space weather and Parliament are working together. With me in the studio is UCL's Lucy Green and from the Met Office in Exeter, Catherine Burnett. You're actually hearing the vibration of the sun. It almost has a warmth to it. It's just enough where I can almost feel the sound on my skin or on my clothes. I imagine feeling the sun, you know, moving next to me. Sounds of the sun from NASA. So Lucy, what is space weather? Space weather is the catch-all phrase that we give to the changes that happen in the space around the Earth. And the way I like to sort of visualise it is that we're living next to this dynamic and active star. And actually the atmosphere of our star extends for a huge distance into space. And the Earth is sitting in that atmosphere. So just as we have changes in the Earth's atmosphere that create terrestrial weather, we have changes in the atmosphere of the sun and that creates space weather. And those changes are gusty winds that blow, eruptions of material that come our way, high energy particles and lots of radiation too. Catherine, where did your worlds first collide? Where did you and Lucy first start working together? Well, if I remember rightly, it was at a conference where we were talking about how to communicate space weather. So we were surrounded by lots of scientists talking about lots of scientific detail. And I remember thinking that Lucy was the the key person stood up there trying to make it more accessible to members of the public and to policymakers. I think the thing that influenced me and impressed me the most is that the work Catherine does spans so many different areas. So the science of space weather itself is global and it is multifaceted. And there's a huge amount of complexity behind it. So even just dealing with one small aspect of that is really challenging. But in Catherine's role, she has to understand all of these physical processes that go from the sun to the earth and impact oh, impact our lives in so many ways through, for example, effects on our satellites. So our navigation satellites can be impacted. Our communication satellites can be impacted. Our communications become impacted but then the sort of the effects ripple down through our atmosphere to the surface of the earth as well so even our electricity distribution can be impacted and it's sort of tied up with the fact that we rely on space technology now in so many areas of our lives I mean if you imagine you wake up in the morning the first thing you might do if you're British is check the weather we're obsessed by the weather what's the weather going to be like but then you might drive to the office and you might use your phone to navigate by so, you know, that's just a couple of examples. All the time we're using space technology and that space technology is affected by space weather, as is ground-based technology too. So on a day-to-day level, the, the lower level space weather is mostly impacting satellite operations and it's working with those customers to 
define what thresholds um, make a difference to them, when they want to be alerted to what's going on in, in space weather terms. Um, but when you start thinking more about the extreme events, the type of events that policymakers are concerned about because they're on our national risk register, then you're talking more about impacts that you wouldn't miss, put it that way. There's lots of impacts to different sectors. So you could have delays to flights because of problems uh, with aviation. Um, you could have impacts to power. Um, you could have impacts to transport and the ability to get around. So there are a, a wide and, and vast array. And as Lucy mentioned, our, our reliance on satellite technology means that we're probably not entirely aware of every sector and every individual instance of where space weather, when it goes, or when it's a very severe event, might um, give us an impact down at ground level or impact what we want to do on a daily basis. Have you found, this is to both of you really, that you've had to change the way you present your work so that policymakers get it? The issue around not fully understanding yet how space weather impacts our technology is a really key point. And this, for me, is one of the reasons why I find it so important to work with Catherine at the Met Office and also engage with policymakers, because there are all these potentially hidden dangers. And one of the areas that gets talked about a lot at the moment is our reliance on GNSS, so the American version of this is called GPS, our Global Positioning Satellites. So these satellites provide us not only with information about where we are on the Earth, but also what time it is too. So let's imagine bank transfers, uh, time stamped using data from the GPS satellite. And there's this sort of awareness that data sets like these are sort of deeply embedded in the practices of various industries. And People may not be fully aware of that. So one of the things we're trying to do is raise that awareness of, look, you know, we've got this thing called space weather. We know it does impact us in certain ways, but there are also ways in which it will certainly impact us and that we don't know about at the moment. So that the conversation really needs to be had just to get people to be thinking, right, how do I look at my business and how do I find out where the vulnerabilities and weaknesses are? And that really is a conversation that involves various partners coming in with various areas of expertise. I think Lucy's got that spot on. I, I entirely agree with that. It's it's no good going in with your agenda. You need to understand what their issues are, their concerns, and then tailor your message so that you get the key information that they need over to them as clearly and as succinctly as possible, because often they're very busy people as well with not just space weather as the thing that's on their desk that they, they need to be concerned about. So you have to help them understand it as quickly and as clearly as you possibly can so that they can weigh up that information in relation to every other piece of information that's landing on their desk. So policymakers look at things in terms of the National Risk Register and on that register they have a series of natural hazards like space weather, terrestrial weather, volcanic ash, pandemic flu um, and other man-made hazards as well and what they look at is the likelihood of those events occurring and if they should occur what the impact is likely to be and then depending on the severity of the risk they will then look to put in mitigating actions. 
Anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like even though we've been working together for a few years now, we're still only at, at the start of that conversation. And I think ways of working together in the future are quite varied, in fact. So space weather is this global thing that impacts so many people around the world with a huge number of different people working on it. We're, We're thinking about, you know, where does it go next? And so... Catherine's talked a lot about the space weather forecasts at the Met Office issue, which are used and are incredibly important. But one of, the, one of the things we're thinking about now is, well, how do we improve those space weather forecasts? And so we need in, you know, input from the Met Office to say these are the areas where we would benefit most from improvements. And so that feeds into the research strategy of universities like UCL. And then we're also thinking about, well, how can we improve the data itself? So weather forecasting benefits from a you know a huge number of weather satellites that are taking data all the time, monitoring the Earth, looking at wind patterns, temperatures, sea temperatures and so on. And in the space weather community, we're sort of, you know, looking slightly, you know, jealously. And <laughs> we would like something like that too. So the longer term is to think about, well, how do we create space weather satellites that would provide us with the data that are needed? And then we can feed that data into our models, back into our research. And in fact, at the moment, we're working on a project to send a spacecraft to a particular point in the solar system called the fifth Lagrange point. So Probably people haven't heard of that, that that name, but it's a point in space where a spacecraft could look at the sun and also towards the Earth and all the space in between. So we'd be able to monitor emissions coming from the sun and actually track what's happening, what, what what's heading our way. And we'll be able to sample the emissions from the sun directly and do all kinds of things. And so we're working with the European Space Agency to make this idea a reality. So that's just kind of a sort of flavour of some of the ways that, that, we sh- that we do need to work together in the future on. Yes, I completely agree. That is going to be one of the cornerstones of where space weather needs to go in future. If you consider ordinary terrestrial forecasting versus space weather forecasting, terrestrial meteorology benefits from thousands of millions of observations, both on the ground, in the sea, in the atmosphere, and from space. Space weather has probably less satellites than I can count on my two hands and is at least maybe... 30 or 40 years behind where we are with terrestrial meteorology. Without the basic observations and the data, scientists can't gain the understanding of what's going on in the sun, how space weather transfers from the sun, impacts the earth and impacts our technology. And without that scientific knowledge, we can't improve the forecast models. So it's it's going to be a cornerstone with where the UK focuses its efforts in order to improve its ability to prepare and mitigate a serious space weather event. I'm just thinking about the field as a whole, the space weather field. A part of what we're doing in the podcast is around diversity. You're in a reasonably male-dominated field. What tips would you give to encourage young female researchers to get involved in this field? I think in terms of getting into public policy work, from, from an academic's perspective, I think a lot of it is about visibility and and I, I know it's it, it can be hard in academia in general to, to become visible, so whether you're male or female, because it involves speaking up, <laughs> you know, not being afraid of saying something um, that you think might be, you know, too trivial, because that, that's never the case. So I think my view is that actually things like public engagement can really be helpful, because if you have visibility, then actually policymakers can find you. 
and 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 you need to you know know about each other you need to know who to speak to so one way is that is that they can come to you another way i think is in working with partnerships as we do in space weather so bringing together academia industry met office and so on um but sort of yeah, remain open-minded as well because you're very likely to have your ideas changed and the direction that you think you might end up going in in policy work will, will probably actually change because you'll, as we talked about before, find out about the motivations of the policymakers. But I think, yeah, my main main thing, I think, is is be visible, have a voice and and then you'll be able to stand out and people will be able to come to you. Mm, I think that's a good point because if you don't follow your nose and do what you find interesting, you won't be effective. You you won't have inspiring, enthusiastic conversations. It's got to feel right. Um, yeah, it's interesting, Catherine, that you never know where, <laughs> where your career will take you. I feel the same. I never thought I'd end up doing some of the things that, that I do. Um, but an enthusiasm to talk about your subject, I think, sort of wins out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, same here. I mean, I had no idea space weather existed. I had no idea that you could have a career in space science in the UK either. <laughs> Certainly from a personal perspective, I think one thing I struggled with early in my career was speaking out and being noticed. But it doesn't always have to be done in a, a room full of scientists in, in front of everybody. You can do an awful lot of networking on a, a one-to-one basis on a personal level that will get you to the same place and gain your confidence and um, before you feel like you're you have to stand up in the middle of a large conference and say something to people so it took me a number of years to get to that point but I would also say you don't have to be fixed on on your end career goal I have done a variety of things over the years I've done project management I've done science I never started off doing a physics degree with the expectation that I was going to be a scientific researcher necessarily the world is your oyster I would always say concentrate on the thing that interests you the thing that is going to engage you study that and then find a, a plethora of options to what you can do with it. So one final question. If you created a phenomenal policy working together and you were standing up in front of Parliament and they'd given you as much money as you could possibly want, where would it go? I would probably split it in two. I, I, I think a significant proportion would have to go in what we've said already. We need the observations to improve the science and the research and the forecasting to help us prepare for a major event. But I would put the other half into the end user side of things. So a lot of what me and Lucy are still trying to do is get space weather known. If, if You can still walk down the street and say space weather to a member of the public and they don't know what we're talking about. It's So my other half of the money would be go into education and helping businesses understand their risk and help them mitigate against it. Oh, yeah. I think I'd like to follow up on the education part as well. And I'd, I'd probably put some money aside for young researchers so I could set up a collaborative network of young researchers who are addressing the big problems in space weather as identified by industry and Met Office and government and and give a bit of time and space to breathe and have those conversations as well so that we're not all rushing, rushing, rushing and, you know, having super packed days that have not enough time to think and be creative and bringing together scientists from across the whole range of areas in one building. Can I have money for a building too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I'd like yeah. a big building <laughs> where we've got some yeah, open spaces yeah, and closed offices. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice view. Yeah, no, I'd get too carried away. <laughs> OK, Lucy Green and Catherine Burnett, thank you very much for sharing your space weather stories. 